So 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 to 17. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, <coughs> faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, suffering, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet, the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learnt it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, as we've been making this major transition in church life, we have been um, beginning a new chapter together with a short series uh, in the month of March on some of the, uh, the, the key things that make us the church. We have been um, looking at this series, We Are the Church. What is distinctive about us? What is, why is the church worth being part of? Uh, what is God doing in us and through us in the world? Two weeks ago, we saw that the church is most fundamentally a people saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And last week we saw that as the redeemed people of God, uh, God has brought us from every tribe and nation and tongue together into one new family. He's given us each other, not only himself, but he's given us one another. And this week, I want you to see that God is, he, he's not only rescued us, he's not only brought us into a new family, but God has also fully equipped us to live our lives for him in this world. A reading from 2 Timothy 3 tells us that uh, the scriptures are able to equip us for every good work. Every good work in this world. Now these verses from uh, this chapter of 2 Timothy are the Apostle Paul's last words. This is his uh, last letter and these are his last words to one of his closest companions, Timothy. Uh, a, a man who was like a son to him someone who was leading a church in Ephesus. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've heard somebody's last words, but there's a certain weightiness to that, isn't there? If you've ever been at the, the deathbed of somebody who's passing, you listen a little bit more intently, knowing that this could be it. Or if you've ever parted ways with a a friend or a relative, and for whatever reason, you know that you are unlikely to see them again. That last conversation occupies a place in your mind and in your heart. 
And these last words of Paul were written shortly before his death, knowing that he would soon be martyred uh, by execution uh, for preaching the message of Jesus Christ. They are final instructions. And he knows that what he's going to be saying to Timothy are not just for Timothy, they're also for the church, reading over Timothy's shoulder and uh, other churches that this letter might be passed along to. And in his final message, he wants to convey something really important. So what is the great apostle's main concern as he approaches death? It is that Timothy, his church, and every Christian person should be equipped to face everything that life can throw at them in this world. Earlier in the chapter, Paul, he had been describing a way of life of those who had departed from the Christian faith. If you look at the beginning of chapter 3, you'll see his description of those who have departed from the Christian faith. Because after Paul had planted this church in Ephesus, uh, men crept in, teaching a different gospel, a different message, saying, uh, we know what Paul said, but this is what you really need. They had departed from the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ and moved on to other teachings, advanced to other techniques. Such people had not only made a shipwreck of their own faith, but they'd made uh, a disaster of other people's faiths as well. They'd led them astray. And in verse 13, Paul summarizes what those people who had departed from the Christian faith, what their problem was. He said, while evildoers and imposters will go on, that is, to progress, to advance, from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So already in the first century, uh, in the church that Paul planted, there were teachers infiltrating the church and saying, Paul was from another era. Uh, it, okay, he, he did some good things, but we need to move on. Update the church for the latter half of the first century. His message on Jesus is good in parts, but we can show you more advanced truths. It's time to progress. But Paul says, as they move beyond the message and the way of life that he taught, the only progress that they're making is from bad to worse. You can see the fruit of their teaching in the first half of the chapter. It bears no resemblance to the Christian faith. They were deceiving others, and they were self-deceived. They were very sincere in what they taught, but they were sincerely deceived. But Timothy was not fooled. Paul contrasts Timothy's response by saying, but you. So that's what those who, who had departed from the faith were doing. But you, Timothy... He says in verse 10, you, however, followed me closely. And he relates nine different things that Timothy followed him closely in. And then in verse 14, he says, uh, but you continued in the faith you learned from childhood. So they had departed from what initially brought them to faith and to another message, but Timothy continued. And there's so much in this passage that we could talk about this morning. If we were preaching through the whole book of 2 Timothy, and that is what we usually do on a Sunday, we go through a whole book or a big section of a book of the Bible, uh, or not chronologically, but um, uh, in, in the, the way it's written, and um, 
That's what we would normally do, but we're in a topical series this morning. And so if we were going to pull out all the richness in this, we could talk about um, how Christian teaching and Christian way of life must go together. The gospel, when it's believed, must change the way we live. It certainly did for Paul and for Timothy. Or we could pause to think about how everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And how that should strengthen our resolve and prepare us for what is inevitable. It's important to know that persecution is necessary for those who want to live a godly life so that you're not thrown off by it when it comes. We could spend time on what I uh, understand is Mothering Sunday in the UK this week. We could spend time thinking about what a great advantage it is for children from the, the youngest of ages being taught the gospel in the family home. That's the case for Timothy. And Paul says, you did well in remaining what, in what your mother and grandmother taught you. There's much worth talking about here. But this morning, I want to focus exclusively on where Paul points Timothy for guidance for the future. He says, you followed my pattern of life, well done, keep doing it. He says, you've stuck with what your mother taught you about the gospel, well done, keep doing that. But I'll soon be dead, and you're going to face much bigger problems than your mother ever anticipated when you were a child, and you need to know how to respond. And that is why you must, you must stick with the scriptures, says Paul. So I want to show you why we can look to the scriptures as the completely trustworthy guide for life that God has given them to be. First, we can live by the scriptures because they are God-breathed. They're God-breathed. Another way of saying that is that the scriptures are the inspired word of God. And that is true if we understand it rightly. They are inspired, but there are many people who would say that the Bible is inspired in the same way that a, a beautiful song is inspired or a wonderful painting is inspired. It's inspired in the way that it inspires me. I feel inspired when I open it and read it. It contains stories and truths that inspire us and lift our minds <coughs> to God. And that's the inspiration of 19th century romantic poets. But that is not what Paul means when he says that Scripture is inspired, that Scripture is God-breathed. It may be true that there are lots of things that make us feel inspired. But the claim Paul is making goes a great deal beyond that. Paul is making an objective claim about the nature of the Bible. It doesn't just subjectively make us feel inspired. It is inspired in itself. He says in verse 16, however we may feel about it, all Scripture is God-breathed. That is to say, the Scripture comes out of the very mouth of God. The God of the Bible is a speaking God. 
He always has been. You, you think of creation at the, the beginning of all things. How did he create the universe? With words, right? He said, let there be light, and there was light. And when we think of how the pagan nations around Israel, they made idols out of silver and gold and wood, and they bowed down and worshipped them, and God said to his people, you shall never do that. You want to worship me? Obey my commands, is what God said to his people. Even the Ark of the Covenant, one of those, the greatest symbols in Israel's history. It was a box. It was the symbolic throne of God himself where his presence dwelled with his people. And inside the box, what was there? Do you remember? The Ten Commandments. The tablets on which the commandments were written. Along with uh, some bread and, and a few other things. But the point is clear. How do we worship God? How do we know God? It's through what he has said. It's through obeying what he said. Our God is a speaking God. And Paul says that all of Scripture, not just some of Scripture, all of it is God-breathed. There are people who would go throughout Scripture and um, cut away at certain pieces. They would take scissors to the things that they don't like. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of the United States, my home country, he, he was well known for this. He took uh, scissors to the Bible and cut out all the miraculous things in the Gospels. He thought that the ethical teaching of Jesus was the really inspired bit. It's what made him feel as though uh, God... Mm, was, it, was there. It made him feel as though his mind and his heart were being elevated, but those miraculous bits, who would believe that? And let's cut those bits out. But Paul says all scripture is God-breathed. That isn't to say that it was dictated by God. No, Scripture was written by human beings. We shouldn't be confused about that, but it was written by human beings who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so in their own style, in their own vocabulary, God's Spirit inspired them to write precisely what he wanted them to write. God used the intellect, the skills, the personalities of men to write down what was divine. Wonderfully, the Bible is a fully human book, and it is a fully divine book. Does that remind you of anything else? The Lord Jesus himself, right? Fully human, fully God. And the scriptures, likewise, are a product of human efforts, but the content of them is divine. So because the whole Bible is God-breathed, it is utterly trustworthy. It is fully authoritative. It is completely good. We could say all those things about Scripture because that's true of God. And He breathed out the Scripture. So trustworthy. Because God always tells the truth and He always keeps His promises. <laughs> the Apostle Peter, in, in uh, the letter of 2 Peter, 
chapter 1, says that God's word is more trustworthy than seeing something with our own eyes. He was an eyewitness, but he says, we heard, we were ear witnesses to what God said. It's a more sure thing than what our eyes see. The scriptures are authoritative because God's word always accomplishes what he sets out for it. In 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says that what was true at creation, when God said, let light shine out of darkness, and it shined out of darkness, is true with the light of Christ that shines into our hearts. It's as his gospel is proclaimed that we are made new creations that were raised from death to life, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. The scriptures are good because God's word is consistent with his gracious character. And we talked about Psalm 119 at the beginning of our service this morning. The longest psalm is a love song to God's word. And it tells us about how good it is. Here are some of the reasons why, (coughs) pardon me, why the scriptures are good according to Psalm 119. It's the way of happiness. It's the way to avoid shame. It's the way to safety. It's the way of good counsel. It gives us strength and hope. It provides wisdom to us. It shows us the way we should go. And on and on and on. Everything good is found in the Scriptures. So the Scriptures are God-breathed. Secondly, we can live by the Scriptures because they're beneficial. We see that knowing the Bible is God's very word would be enough to make it important, don't we? We see that that would be important. But what does it do for me now? How how could we not want to hear what God says when we know how useful what he says is, how beneficial to us, how profitable? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Paul uses two pairs of words to show the usefulness of Scripture. Teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. The first pair, teaching and rebuking, they have to do with our beliefs. So every part of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, must be studied because all the poetry, all the narratives, all the proverbs, all the apocalyptic literature... It teaches us everything that we need to know about God and the world and everything else, ourselves. And it also, therefore, necessarily rebukes us. It corrects us. Because when we see the truths expressed in Scripture, that will necessarily challenge our wrong beliefs. We tend to make God in our own image. We think he would think like I think, and he would act in the ways that I think, and he would be upset by the things I'm upset with. And then we open the scriptures and we see he is utterly different from us. And when we set up God in our own image, that's called idolatry. But when we allow God to show us what he himself is like, that's true worship. Scripture allows us to truly worship the true God. It teaches us to hold that God is both completely loving and totally just. It teaches us that we are both made in God's image and hopelessly sinful. And so on and so on. 
The second pair, correcting and training in righteousness, Paul says, it has to do with our behavior. Scripture corrects our way of life. It straightens us out. It shows us how we ought to live. It trains us to live out the faith that we profess in righteousness. Kevin DeYoung is a, a pastor from the U.S. He's written a book that's really worth picking up. It's not on the bookstall, actually, but it should be. Maybe it will be in future weeks. He wrote a book called Taking God at His Word, and it goes through um, a few key passages in the Scriptures about what the Scriptures say about the Scriptures. Let me read you something that he says here. He says, We need the Bible if we're going to be competent Christians. The Bible builds us up so that we can endure suffering. It will give us discernment for difficult choices. It will make us strong enough to be patient with others and patient enough to respond with kindness when others hurt us. The Bible will get us up to bring a meal to new moms and it will get us to pray for people in hospital beds. The Bible equips us to be truth lovers and truth tellers. It sends us out to care for the poor, to welcome the stranger. There's no limit to what the Bible can do for us, to us, through us. We can never outgrow the Bible because it's always meant to make us grow. The Bible is only impractical for immature people, only irrelevant for fools who believe that almost everything is new under the sun. The Bible is useful. It makes us useful, actually, to God and to one another. And thirdly, I want you to see that we can live by the Scriptures because they are sufficient. To say that Scripture is completely sufficient means that Scripture has everything we need for life and for doctrine. Paul says, you have known the, scripture, the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 17, he says, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now that's not to say that we don't need other books. If we want to learn maths, or we want to pick up Cantonese, or we want to learn to play the guitar, the Bible's not going to be a great deal of help for those things, for most of us. But because the Bible is sufficient, we don't need any other source of information to live godly lives of purpose now and to enjoy eternal life with God in the future. Again, uh, Kevin DeYoung is helpful here. He says, Scripture doesn't tell us everything we want to know about everything. Of course it doesn't. It tells us everything we need to know about the most important things. The purpose of Holy Scripture is not ultimately to make you smart or to make you relevant or to make you rich or to get you a job or to get you married or to take all your problems away or to tell you where to live. The aim is that you'd be wise enough to put your faith in Christ and be saved. Nothing else in all the world has that ability. And friends, it's my experience at the bedside of dying people that this word is enough for people. This word is sufficient. The truths of Scripture are going to sustain you in the moment of your death. 
And in every moment from now until then, they can do the same. When your strength is failing, there's nothing more you will need to know than that your sins are forgiven and that you will be welcomed by your Savior. I've been with people. They, they don't need anything more than that in their deathbed. You will want nothing more than the reassuring knowledge that the gracious, loving God that you have known throughout life will be with the loved ones that you leave behind. You'll need to know that. And so the, the, only the scriptures are sufficient to give you that. Studying the scriptures might seem like a small thing now. But then, on that day, you're going to understand the weight of it. You're going to say, thank you, God, that I don't need to, to question whether these things are true. The time will come when it will be shown whether our lives were founded on trivialities or on the realities of God's word. So let's start building our lives on it now, before the end. So in closing, you can trust the Bible. You can live by every word that's breathed out of God's mouth. Because every part of it is beneficial to you. It is completely sufficient for guiding you through this life and the next. It is through his word that God will equip you for every good work. Do we believe it? Good. <laughs> Let's believe it. Let's trust it. <laughs> and if you don't, let me continue to try to convince you week by week as we open it up together and behold its power among us. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much that we have your word. Thank you so much that you're a speaking God. You want to be known. You want us to know what's true in this world. Lord God, we want to be equipped for every good work you have for us. We don't want to live fruitless lives. We don't want to go about purposeless in our days. We want to live the way that you've called us to live. We want to love our neighbors as ourselves. We want to love you with all our heart and our mind and our strength. And so help us to turn again and again to what you've said will equip us. And Lord, please, as we do that, will we grow? Will you grow us as a church, as individuals, in every way that we need to? We trust you. We believe you when you say you'll do it. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.